Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Stephen Yun is an actor. If you're a fan of The Walking Dead, he played Glenn. He was in Sorry to Bother You, and he's in the new film Burning as well. He was born in Seoul, South Korea, grew up in the Detroit area, and as a kid, he was pretty active at his local Korean-American church. One time, he went to this big Christian youth conference. Tons of kids were there from churches all over, but Stevens was the only Korean-American one. And honestly, it kind of stunk at first. Some of the kids were awkward with him. Other ones were mean. The funniest part of that was, like, we did distinctly feel out of place. And then it all culminated to winning the broomball championship. And we won that. Like, we won it. Uh, We went, lost our first game, got dropped down to the loser tier, and then worked our way back up to a final penalty hit, penalty shot, where this, one of my friends at church, Danny Kim, he hit this amazing shot that, like, he he chipped it so it went over the goalkeeper and right over his shoulder into the goal, and we went ballistic. And um, I think they respected us after that. All hail Danny Kim, the Wayne Gretzky of intra-youth group Church Broomball. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Stephen Yun. His new movie, Burning, is the first Korean language movie he's worked in, which for a kid raised in Detroit was kind of intimidating. I was afraid to do it for a split second before I met director Lee where I just kind of processed and I told myself, like, hey, there's a version of this where you say no to him, uh, where you say, I don't think I can accomplish what you, inquire, what you require me to do. But then after I met him and he gave me the blessing to be like, I, I think you're the person to play this part, I didn't think about it. I just was like, all right, now I have work to do. Then Dr. Sidney McElroy and Justin McElroy. They're married and they host the show Sawbones a hit medical history podcast. Centuries of study have taught us a lot about medicine. We know more about the brain, about bacteria, bones. There are some things for which that is not true, though, like hiccups. Throughout all of human history, we have had hiccups and then stopped having them at a certain point after that. (laughs) And whatever you did right before that moment was the cure for hiccups. That's why there's no consent, like... You hear a hundred different cures for hiccups, and it's all because we just believed, well, whatever we did right before they stopped, that's the cure. That's Mm -hmm. what did it. That works. And then I'll tell you about the person who inspired me to be a radio host. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up this week, Stephen Young. I guess you could call him an up-and-coming actor. He's been working for a little bit over a decade now. He broke through in 2010 when he played Glenn Ree on The Walking Dead. He starred in the films Okja and I Origins, to name a couple. His newest movie is called Burning. It's kind of a thriller. Lee Chang-dong is the director and writer. It's set in South Korea, and it tells the story of a dark, kind of strange love triangle. The protagonist, Jong Soo, is a working-class guy who lives in a rural area outside Seoul. One day, when he's in the city, 
he meets Hey Me, a girl from back home. They connect, they go on a date, they start hanging out more. They aren't exactly boyfriend and girlfriend, but you can tell that Jong Soo is kind of infatuated with her. Things change when she comes back from a trip abroad. She shows up at the airport with Ben. That's Stephen's character. Ben is handsome and he's rich, too, although it's not clear why he's rich. As Hey Me starts to spend more time with Ben, hints start to drop that Ben might have a darker side. Hey Me vanishes. We're not sure why. Jung Soo suspects Ben had something to do with it, but there's no smoking gun, no damning piece of evidence to say that he did it. Burning is a beautiful film. It's quiet, opaque. The director never tips his hand. And the actors, Yu A-in as Jung Soo, Jun Jung So as Hei Mi, and Steven as Ben, match perfectly the film's tone. They're understated, compelling, and every now and then just just a few degrees off. It's South Korea's submission for the Academy Awards and a terrific movie from start to finish. And incidentally, Stephen Yun was also in another critical favorite this year, Sorry to Bother You, the movie directed by Boots Riley. It's in part about telemarketing. And towards the beginning of the movie, Cash, played by Lakeith Stanfield, gets a job at a telemarketing company. Stephen Yun plays Squeeze, a co-worker of his, who has gotten a job at the telemarketing company in order to unionize his fellow callers. In this scene, Squeeze and Cash just got out of a big office-wide meeting, and the two of them encounter each other for the first time. I'm Squeeze. Seen you around for a couple weeks. There's a good question in there. Cashes. People call me Cash. It's a really good question in there, man. What about us getting paid? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's kind of silly that we have to be all excited. I know. Exactly. I mean, you just cut straight to the chase, man. That's awesome. Play got to mob up with us for some screwing pennies. Well, what the f*** does that mean? Uh, there's a bunch of us that are organizing to get us paid more. Get some benefits. Could really use your energy to jump things off. Yeah, um, <clears throat> look, I gotta get back to work, man. So. Hey, man, look, look, I'm sorry I got you like this, but obviously we can't talk here. Let's go grab a drink later. It's on me. Steven Yun, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. You grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Yes. What was Detroit, Michigan like when you were growing up? I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. I got to visit Detroit every week because my folks owned a beauty supply on Woodward downtown right across the street from the Sears building, which eventually got demolished. Detroit was like, at that time, the place you don't go to, uh, rather the place that, you know, your immigrant parents work. That's kind of how I saw it. While I lived in the bustling dry metropolis, or the suburban metropolis as known as Troy, it was quiet, grassy, a lot of shopping, and just running around outside. That's mostly what it was. What kind of running around outside? I mean, like skateboarding in a cul-de-sac or something? <laughs> I wish. I wish I was that cool. Um, actually, <laughs> um, it was a lot of... <laughs> what could be cooler? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty not cool. Hockey, street hockey, football, soccer, baseball. It was just pre-internet life, which I can barely remember. It is. I mean, like, we're a similar age, and 
it is odd to think that there is a demarcation in your life before and after you could just go on the computer and just stay there for five hours. Oh, yeah. Or like when all book reports looked exactly the same because it was all <laughs> off that Encarta 95 disc. You know what I mean? Like it was just Britannica or Encarta. And, you know, now it's like people's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they steal from more specific sources. Of course, now, of course. Primarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now we know that those collections of information were slightly tainted. Well, there was a time, yeah. I think, when the promise of the computer was mm. that you could add a color photograph to your report. <laughs> yeah, that's really And that would launch you onto the honor roll. Yeah, or like uh, you get one of those like dissolving fades on your video project <laughs> that you had to do. <laughs> and it's mostly the rich kids that got to do those little things because their parents have those texts. But yeah, no, different times. <laughs> did you grow up in, I mean, you went to church. Did you go to a Korean American church? Yes, I did. So mm -hmm. did you grow up in a Korean American community or did you, like how much of your life was defined by your parents' Koreanness, mm. and how much of your life was, miscellaneous suburban midwesterner um I, I led a very dualistic life you know i trace it back nowadays and think about immigration and i had some stories from the past where i was like oh i i remember getting dragged in kicking and screaming to class every single day when i was in kindergarten uh and then they just sat me down with uh play-doh um, I remember my dad telling me my first word, English words were, what does don't cry mean? And, you know, they've just become like funny myths or like ideas or stories that you tell yourself and to, to give yourself a backstory. But then like you really process that in your adult age and you're like, maybe that was messed up. Like maybe that was really traumatic and I didn't know how to deal. But I do remember that. I think it connects is that made me so scared that I desired to be part of, you know, what was popular and normal, which was, you know, white suburban uh, culture. And, and then I had this other portion, which was church friends. And that was where it felt like family, I felt comfortable, I felt like myself. Were you aware of the difference between, you? I mean, I presume that you had peers in school who were, you know, going to young life or whatever mm -hmm. like christian youth groups and mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. like were you were you aware of the difference between your world of christian youth culture and mm. their world of youth christian youth co well, culture you know i don't know if i was that aware until we went to a massive young life conference and it was one of those huge uh church retreats where like there's like i don't know a hundred youth groups from a hundred different churches and we were the only Korean one that went and I remember uh, getting a couple you know kid racist things like you know seeing that the bus was had Korean letters on it so you know people do the whole like ching chong thing or whatever um, but I, I, you know it wasn't too bad because it was still Christian um, they were trying to keep it cool <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the funniest part of that was like we did distinctly feel out of place and then it all culminated to winning the broomball championship and we won that like we won it uh, we went lost our first game got dropped down to the loser tier and then worked our way back up to a final penalty hit penalty shot where this one of my friends at church Danny Kim he hit this 
amazing shot that like he ch- he chipped it so it went over the goalkeeper and right over his shoulder into the goal and we went ballistic and um i think they respected us after that i feel like that was <laughs> the korean suburban detroit's korean american population's version of the you know what was that 1984 <laughs> usa versus the yeah, ussr he, hockey game yes that's exactly right <laughs> uh it was peak peak life i think <laughs> You live here in Los Angeles, right? Mm-hmm. And you also have a brother who lives here in Los Angeles, yes. has a restaurant not not that far from here in mm-hmm. Koreatown. What is it like for you to see the particular kind of Korean-American experience that exists here in Los Angeles where yeah. there are places where there are many fully independent worlds of upper middle class Korean and Korean-American people, both like Koreans living in America who might mm-hmm. not identify themselves even as American? Mm-hmm. And immigrants who have upper class lives that are majority Korean, like they're living in a mm-hmm. Korean American world. Mm-hmm. What's that like for you to see as as an adult, as a guy who came here when you were in your mid late twenties? Well, I mean, like sometimes you'll meet kids from Hawaii or SoCal, Korean kids, or even the Bay, and they're just unlocked, you know, or they're normal. Um, they don't have this image of. Korean American or Asian American that they're kind of acquiescing to, you know. I'm I'm from Michigan, and while I didn't experience intense overt racism, I experienced more like I'm projecting onto you the space that you're allowed to inhabit, and it's this big, and I won't objectively tell it to you, but you'll feel it in fear, and you'll feel it in the way that we treat you in like a very small, subtle way. So you all of a sudden find yourself, you know, saying like, "Oh, like I like violin," and you're like, "I don't really like violin, but I'm pretty much I think I'm supposed to like violin." Or you go, "I can't be on the football team, but I can be on the tennis team," and you're like, "Oh yeah, I like tennis," and you make all these. Cognitively dissonant decisions for yourself, and you tell yourself and you convince yourself that, like, these are decisions that are coming from you and they're truthful, honest decisions that you yourself had complete agency over. And then you look back and you go, Oh, most of this was just to like fit the mold or keep safe or make myself predictable to these people so that I don't get harmed or that I feel accepted. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to break through that type of, you know, mental prison you've set up for yourself, then you have to do the work to, like, rebuild, like, your actual being. Well, I mean, one of the things is you're describing, like, coming to terms with the idea of, like, for example, do I actually want to play on the tennis team, right? Yeah. But, like, in rejecting it, you're also making a choice that you have to deal with the consequences yes, of. Yes, yes. Whereas uh, I might be in the position to just not be into tennis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I would watch a lot of my, you know, I said this uh, before. I did a story um, at Riot LA. And, and, I, and I won't speak for other people, but I'll speak most, I mean, I can only speak for myself. But for me, I wanted to assimilate very badly um, to the point where I even wanted something as dumb and benign as storage. You know, like I distinctly remember being like, I want storage. 
I didn't know, like, there's nothing special about storage, but I was like, I want that because my friend Tony Hartman has that. Like, we, you know, we sat by in his house and we're like, let's play Nintendo. And he's like, oh, I can't play Nintendo. And my mom says it's in storage. And I'm like, storage? What the hell is storage? How do I get that for myself? You know? You want <laughs> How do to- I tap into this, <laughs> yeah. this symbol of late capitalism? <laughs> yeah. How do I get access so that I can put it away in a non, you know, where I can't access it uh, uh, very fast? Like, it's just so dumb, but I I wanted it. I wanted that. I wanted the dog. I wanted the photo on the mantle going to Cabo San Lucas with my family. I want, you know, like I remember teaching kids soccer in Chicago when I was um, just starting out and you'd see these like two year old, three year old kids, you know, living very nouveau riche lives being like, I just came back from Turks and Caicos. And you're like, damn, I didn't even know that was a place. And I'm 25, you know, like I never even set foot in that type of place before. And it's just, you know, it's it's this overall, it's just finding a comfort with yourself. And that was part of my growth. That was part of, um, I think, my Asian American upbringing that when juxtaposed to Korean kids that I meet in L.A. who are just like, yeah, I'm Ted Kim. So what? And I'm like, you're Ted Kim. Like it took me a while to not be. Korean kid number five, and now I'm Steven, you know. And then even then, they want to nickname you. I remember growing up too, like having a very strong aversion to people trying to nickname me. Like, I couldn't stand it. Like, if they tried to nickname me, I lose my mind. And I often wondered where that came from. And in retrospect, it was just like I wanted to feel like I had control over something. Uh, my name would be one of them, you know? But yeah, small, like, crazy stuff like that. It seems like the kind of sensitivity that assimilation requires to the expectations of everyone around you and the facade that you have to maintain Mm. to engage those in the right way Mm. is, you know, it's like a major acting job. Yeah, I was awesome at it early. And then you, you know, then you come of age and you unpack so many other things where you're like, if I went through this as a straight male, what's that like to be gay? What's that like to be a woman? Like, what's that like to be black? And you're just, then you, you know, you go through all this stuff. And, um, but just talking from my point of view, yeah, it's hard, hard work to constantly put on a show every waking minute that you're outside. In Burning, you play Korean, that is to say, a native-born Korean. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first time you've played a native-born Korean Mm -hmm. on screen. Is that Mm -hmm. true? Uh, Yes. Well, technically, you could argue that K in Okja was natively born there, but he is not. He's fully American. But yeah, this is the first time I've played a currently native Korean. Were you afraid to do that? I was afraid to do it for a split second before I met director Lee where I just kind of processed and I told myself like, Hey, there's a version of this where you say no to him, uh, where you say, I don't think I can accomplish what you inquire, what you require me to do. But then after I met him and he gave me the blessing to be like, I I think you're the person to play this part. I didn't think about it. I just was like, all right, now I have work to do. But I think that type of like dumb bravery comes from this one moment that I remember in my life where I was in Chicago 
And the dream, like, you know, you can't make money in Chicago doing acting. You can try. Some people get, you know, really great gigs, but it's hard over there. It's basically either you booked a 20-year-long running series of rallies commercials. Yes. Yeah. Or you're not making yeah. a living acting. Yeah. There's, that is the job. You're either TJ Jagodowski yeah. or you're nobody. Uh, no, I mean, there's incredible talent over there, but, like, there's not the opportunity. So when you land one of those... Um, uh, uh, like part. an industrial? Industrial, that's what it is. But I did a live industrial. <laughs> <laughs> like an industrial stage show? An industrial is a word for a film that's used within commerce mm-hmm. internally. So like training videos mm-hmm. often, things like, like that. Or like trade shows. Yeah. Uh, I did a, con- a microchip convention trade show where I had to do an industrial playing in the vein of Hero from Heroes. Mm. And I had to do a 15-page monologue on the chip, which was made originally for someone who had ear prompter experience. I had zero prompter experience, and it actually bugged. It was harder for me to use the prompter. So I was like, screw it. I have to just memorize 15 pages of technical jargon, and I somehow did it. I somehow did it. And after that, I was like, cool, I can do anything. <laughs> I can do that bull****. I can do anything. So when I did this role, it was just like, cool, I got the blessing. I just got to amp up my Korean. And then I just got to memorize these words. Like, let's go. Yeah, because one of the things that I want to know is how much Korean were you speaking in your life mm. before you got this part? Luckily, my parents retain my Korean. Uh, we only speak Korean in the house with them. So my accent wasn't altered too heavily. I lost it a little bit, but it was, it's easily it, it comes back very easily. Now, where I don't have a lot of information is just kind of nuance and, and updated modern nuance and also uh, just a deep well of vocabulary so, and the ability to read well. So Korean is very phonetic, and so you can read everything. But it's not like how we, you know, you're supposed to scan a word. We scan words as we go. In Korean, I was like literally reading every letter. So it was like like a, you know, kindergartner's reading ability. And so just a lot of work. Just to like, it was, it was very technical at first. And then I just got through it and it became more natural. We'll have even more with Stephen Yun when we get back from a short break. Then later, Justin and Sidney McElroy, the co-hosts of the podcast Sawbones, tell us some crazy stories from the bananas history of medicine. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hinge. Hinge is the dating app that's great at one thing, setting you up on great dates. And they're not just saying that. On Hinge, three out of four first dates lead to second dates. They're the number one mobile-first dating app mentioned in the New York Times wedding section. So, if you're looking for a BFF, a job, a pen pal, or a hookup, Hinge isn't the place for you. Hinge is exclusively designed to get you out on great dates. Download Hinge in the Apple Store or Google Play. Dr. Larry Nassar abused his patients for decades. I do remember telling the nurse, what if everyone thinks I'm lying? Believed, a new podcast from Michigan Radio and NPR, looks at how a team of women put one of the worst serial sexual abusers behind bars. 
In a world dominated by dude bro movie podcasts. A world where Casey Affleck has an Oscar and Angela Bassett does not. Only one podcast is brave enough to call bullshit. Who shot ya? With Ricky Carmona. A lot of people don't know Porks, Puerto Rican. Alonzo Duralde. I would eat Oakjaw. <gasps> April Wolf. I want to interrupt and say yes. that the fish man was real sexy. Drea Clark. I have a real soft spot for King Kong. And women of color. I was like, damn! Right, Kugel got final cut. Kugel got final cut! I just felt like the film was so sour and so completely irrelevant to basically anything in life. Who shot ya? Listen every Friday. Friday on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Stephen Yun. You know him from Oak Jaw, The Walking Dead, and more. His new film, Burning, is in select theaters now. How comfortable were you as a guy in your mid to late 20s who was pretty new to acting in like year two of The Walking Dead mm. when... You were walking into the, no pun intended, the enormity of the fan culture around the show. Like, yeah. it's probably one of the five or so biggest deals in fan culture. Yeah. And that is a huge part of your job as mm. an actor on that show. Mm. You know that you're signed up for your, you know, you're going to be there for five or seven years if the show keeps going and they don't kill you you know mm -hmm. like you're you're in yeah it's not like a movie where you can not be in the next one yeah what was it like to blunder into that oh it was tough it was uh, i'll be honest with you like the tough components were just coming from a lifestyle where i was usually the most background of all background people i mean i obviously did work in improv to be in front if i could but on the daily, like, as an Asian dude, like, you're not noticed. <laughs> you know, like, that's what happens. You're just walking and people are like, that's, there's a thing that's walking. Um, and so I didn't ever know the feeling of being called at or called to. I remember walking into my Best Buy uh, that I was at when I was living in Westwood when I first moved here. The show had just aired its first episode. I wasn't even in the episode. But the fans of the comic had known what I looked like because the casting notices came out. And I walked into the Best Buy that I'd walked into all the time for the last year without any notice. And right as I go in, the guy goes, hey, are you Steven Yun who plays Glenn? I distinctly remember that moment where that's where my life changed, where now I realize that the outside was nowhere to be private either. Like my privacy was gone. And that took some while to deal with. I remember going through some rough patches of just feeling imprisoned in some ways. Like I felt like I couldn't be free to be myself, even though at that point I also didn't know who I was anyway. And so, yeah, that was a that was an interesting ride. Then you just get comfortable with it. Then you go through this process where like you accept it, but if you just accept it outright and not question it, you can really just become a thing that they want you to become. And so then you play to these things that they say you are. And if you don't uphold those things, then it's dissonant to people. And all of a sudden they're angry that you're not who they thought you were. Well, you have an extra 
thing to deal with in that context. I mean, I know in in my own tiny scale version of it, like I don't have any problem walking around the streets, obviously. Mm-hmm. Although in certain public radio yeah. or enthusiastic communities, <laughs> yeah, right on. Park Slope. <laughs> uh, no, but like I don't. That's that's never been a problem for me. The but you know when you make work that is really important to people, mm. you have to deal with the prospect of disappointing them, and I find that very difficult. Mm. But perhaps even more than that, for me, I find it difficult to be present for people yeah. for whom I've had a positive impact, and for you. As a guy who, you know, I mean, you were on the the number one key demo tele- television program mm. in America mm. as an Asian-American guy with a romantic lead storyline. Mm. Like, you mean a lot to people who are huge Walking Dead fans. Mm-hmm. But God knows if you're an Asian-American guy and mm. you are a Walking Dead fan. Sure, yeah. They might not even be fans of the show. They yeah. might just be like, I got to support this dude because they don't have many of yeah. us, you know? Yeah, there was pressure there it's um, hard to manage it inside yourself like even when you're face to face with like it's you, somebody's telling you the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your life but yeah. you're you're also just dealing with the reality of the fact that you you just went to work and did your job right as well, best as you could and you probably you're probably thinking of all the things that you messed up oh my god I, yeah i have a ca- I'm running catalog um I, I think it's like this it's like it's not that i was i, I wasn't messed up when people poured their heart out and when I heard truth in their voice, I could still tell when someone asks you for a photo or something when it's like honest. But then there's this other portion where it's not they're not asking you for a photo. They're telling you that you're going to give you they're, you're going to give them a photo because what happens when you're invited to someone's living room every single week in mass and at that scale and with that type of conversation around it. You are now property of that thing. You are now property to people's visions of who you are. They go, like, even if they don't explicitly say you are mine, that's the feeling that they project out. You, you can tell when they think you are not a human, but rather this ethereal thing or this metaphor for an idea or even just a character. They go, you are this character. But And those were the moments that really messed me up, actually, was the dehumanization of me. Because in some weird way, I had never even been fully human outside either for myself um, because I was mostly just conforming to another pattern. So then I felt completely empty for a while. Um, and then, you know, you grow up and you stop. You, you figure it out. But that's where it was a weird place. It was a very weird place. Is there anything uh, that you feel that passionately about in the world? I mean, like, are, do you have a Star Trek tattoo or something? <laughs> no. Um, I don't know why. Um, I have some favorites, but I don't know. I think my ego's too strong. <laughs> <laughs> I got too aggressive of an ego. <laughs> I, I, you know, my grandmother... Uh, uh, rest in peace. But she is the family like go getter, and she was hardcore about winning most things. And you know, I don't know if that's in me, but 
I definitely can relate to it in some ways. I mean, if it's not in you, you can you can do it on screen. <laughs> I'll try. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Stephen Young, his new movie, Burning, is fantastic. It's out now. It is like nothing you've ever seen. It's also, like we said before, South Korea's entry for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. Nominations will be announced early next year. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A warning here before we get into this interview. This is a conversation about medical history. So we will be talking about blood and guts and injuries and other potentially squeamish and or gross stuff. So if you're sensitive to that, we thought we'd let you know. Anyway, there's something kind of fascinating and morbid about medical history, something unique to that genre. Like if you read up on military history, odds are You'll hear about generals maneuvering soldiers around, surprising each other, sacking cities. The technology has changed, but war has always been war. But look into the history of medicine, and one thing will become very clear very quickly. For a really long time, we had no idea how our own bodies worked. Sawbones a podcast in my own podcast network, Maximum Fun, is a show about all the gruesome, gross, and sometimes very funny stuff that we did to our bodies over the centuries in the name of medicine and health. It's hosted by Dr. Sidney McElroy, a physician and medical history buff, and her husband, Justin, who hosts the big comedy podcasts, My Brother, My Brother and Me and The Adventure Zone. Now Sawbones the Podcast is also a book. It's called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. It's beautifully illustrated by Taylor Smurl and in bookstores now. Dr. Sidney McElroy, Justin McElroy, welcome to Bullseye. Nice to see you guys. What an honor it is to be on your program, finally, Jesse, as an auteur, <laughs> uh, which is what us authors call authors. <laughs> really? Is that, what, is that what we say? Yes, that is what us authors, mm. or auteurs, if we prefer, <laughs> say. I, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> so you two were podcasting before you started Sawbones. Um, you had two television podcasts, which is a much more typical thing to podcast about. How did you end up podcasting about the very specific topic of medical history? Sydney always gets mad at me because in interviews, I always bring up these two great shows, these great concept shows. They weren't great. <laughs> the first was called go ahead. I, I, go ahead. Losing the Sheen, which was a... Darn, that's like the punchline, but the setup is it's a show about two and a half men hosted by two people that did not watch it until Ashton Kutcher joined the show and replaced Charlie Sheen. And it was a episode-by-episode recap that we managed to stick with for all of ten episodes, I think, nine or ten episodes on Losing the Sheen, before we are like, hey, this is, there's no amount of, like... soul-crushing. Yeah, it's soul-crushing, it's soul-crushing. Um... And then we uh, decided to do a general TV podcast called Satellite Dish, and that was pretty good, uh, except it made it so that we had to watch more TV than we wanted mm-hmm. to keep up with like the demand of having a TV podcast. Yeah, we got we and we just got too busy, and so we started to think doing a podcast is fun, but how can we kind of capitalize on what 
what I was doing with the majority of my time, which was acting, you know, as a physician, being a doctor. And so she's a real physician. She wasn't acting. Yeah, not like, exactly. Not like catch. <laughs> not like not a catch me if you can situation. <laughs> <laughs> so I had always been interested in, in medical history. It was something that I, for fun, if that is fun, would, would read about in my spare time. And so we started talking about how some of these stories are pretty funny and kind of gruesome and pretty wild. And maybe other people would like to hear them. And then Sawbones was born. Sydney, why do you think you were interested in medical history, even as a doctor? I'm sure many of your colleagues are glad to know the latest and greatest and not worry about Pliny the Elder. <laughs> Part of it is some of the conclusions we've come to and the ways that we manage things. It's just fascinating to think about how did we figure that out? How did we get here? How did we come up with that? And that was part of why I wanted to know. And then the other thing about medicine is that so much stuff has eponyms. You you learn about you know, various signs that are named for different doctors or places or patients or whatever. And I was always curious as to who was that and what did they do and why did they get that named after them and how do I get that? And (laughs) it was also a way uh, for us to avoid giving advice, which can get uh, legally uh, a little dicey and just morally and ethically like challenging. So talking about what people used to do helps us to skirt that. Pretty handily. <laughs> I like that you're controlling liability with this podcast. That was the fir- that was the original title, but we just <laughs> couldn't fit it on the thumbnail. So, can you take me kind of briefly, Sydney, through the basic history of what people, and particularly in uh, what used to be called the West, knew about how the body worked up until? the 20th century. Like, when did we figure out that hearts are important or that brains are for thinking? (laughs) Uh, So we'll just sum up the past 245 (laughs) episodes of our podcast (laughs) in a breezy two-minute summary, no problem at all. Sydney, go. I'm just looking for a few basic signposts I can build the rest (laughs) of this around, okay? Um, A lot of the the first challenge is anatomy i mean that that was that was the basic first challenge was what's inside the human body and can we take a look and figure that out and it really wasn't until um dissections started becoming culturally and and socially acceptable and that was uh during the medieval period actually when we started to see more dissections and we got a better understanding of anatomy up until then a lot of it had been derived from a couple people who had done dissections here and there and written about it and then a lot of Um, animal dissections and so we had a lot of weird ideas about what was going on in there so that was probably the first turning point was when we could actually start doing dissections and then we knew what the pieces were Um, it a lot of it from there forward until we get to gosh the 1800s the humoral system of medicine was still popular up until then the idea that we have four humors and we've got to balance them um we were still debating did veins and arteries carry blood or air or um we had weird ideas like maybe our bones are made of semen uh (laughs) all of these things until (laughs) jury is still out on that one by the way science is going back and forth still Really, it's not until the 1800s that we start to get a firmer idea of 
what each organ does and where different processes take place. Um, and then medical science really explodes at the turn of the century there and throughout the 1900s. I mean, it's just advance after advance and the germ theory of disease. And then we understand, you know, how how we can infect each other with various illnesses and uh, then vaccines and antibiotics come along and and everything changes throughout the first half, really, of the 1900s. Well, and, and also I think you have a, a huge shift in the idea of like what science can do, because we didn't understand any of these things before we started applying treatments. So like even back before we would understand why something would work or something wouldn't work. Uh, it was just about, well, I don't know, let's try it and let's record the phenomena and see what happens and see what the effect of this thing is. And that is our role. It is not to understand why things are working. It is just to mm-hmm. catalog what does and does not work. So we're trying treatments a long, 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 long time before we ever have the understanding to create a reasonable hypothesis for why these things work. And to differentiate between correlation and causation was a big deal. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, well, your hiccups stopped after you walked through a crossroads so walking through a crossroads must stop hiccups hiccups is actually i think the best number one bet like if you want to understand medical history i'm obsessed with the idea of hiccups because hiccups and i think warts are the two Mm -hmm. where i would put it like throughout all of human history we have had hiccups and then stopped having them at a certain point after that. <laughs> and whatever you did mm-hmm. right before that moment was the cure for hiccups. Yes. That's why there's no consent. Like, you hear a hundred different cures for hiccups, and it's all because we just believed, well, whatever we did right before they stopped, that's the cure. That's mm-hmm. what did it. That works. Sydney, you both teach medicine and are a family doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, has thinking about these things affected the way that you practice? I think for sure. I'm I'm a lot more in tune with the fact that even though we have come very far and we know a lot more than we used to, uh, even 50 years ago, there's still a lot we have to learn. Uh, there is still a reason to take every new advance and look at it and analyze the data and figure out why we're making these decisions and then take all that and still try to advise. There is still some individual treatment for each patient there's still a way to take all that evidence and then use the part of it that is most appropriate for each person for their health and for their benefit and i think i've really i've i've really come to understand that better from from studying this um and i feel a lot luckier (laughs) to be practicing medicine now than i would a hundred years ago i mean i think about that all the time i have a chronic health condition i have severe migraine headaches. And I think of the fact that, you know, human beings have been on the earth for so long, like so long, and my health condition doesn't threaten to kill me, but it sure makes my life miserable. And I think what an incredible difference just the past 25 years, even since Mm -hmm. in my memory is, over the 25 years before that when my mother suffered from migraines. To say nothing of 75 years ago when my grandmother suffered from migraines or 100 years ago when some guy in Dusseldorf just, you know, would try to self-trepanate uh, so he could <laughs> let the demons out or whatever. Uh-huh. No, it, it's very true. I, I think um, I've become, I hope, a better advocate for uh, 
like vaccination as an example because of this when I'm talking to my patients uh, people who are nervous about it I think having the historical perspective and saying listen I know I know how hard it is to see your kid get a shot but let me just walk you through why and how and what it was like before um, having that perspective of what it was like 25 50 75 100 years ago and the dangers that were out there for kids I I think it I hope it helps me be a better advocate. It's also been one of the frustrating things about making Sawbones in the past couple of years is that what started out as a show that was supposed to be about medical history and, hey, hooray for us, aren't we smart? We solved all these things. Uh, far too frequently, I think, our show has ha- recently has had to become like, hey, this is still true. <laughs> these things are still made up. Like there is still such a thing as right and wrong and true and false. And some people still would love to steal your money to uh, pretend to make you feel better um, or just get asbestos back out there. It, it get its moment <laughs> to shine again. Nope. Still bad. It's still actually very bad for you. Is actually one of the things that, that uh, is still very true. So that kind of stuff has got it, it has like inadvertently made Sawbones more political just because like <laughs> talking about how science is an actual thing is, has become has annoying. Become a political uh, act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll wrap up my conversation with Sydney and Justin McElroy when we return from a break. Still to come. Imagine if we could get one of those old-timey doctors into a time machine and transport them to today. How would they react to modern medicine? The Sawbones team, that's a pretty good guess. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there a dog in a car at a bar on the street? Yay! I'm Allegra Ringo, a small dog owner. My dog Pistachio howls when she's excited. And I'm Renee Culvert, a big dog owner. My dog Tugboat tips over when he's sleepy. And we co-host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog that airs every Tuesday. We bring you all things dog. Yes, dog news, dog tech, dogs we met this week. We also have pretty famous guests on Butt Legs. We're not going to let them talk about their projects. No. Just want to hear about those dogs. We don't want to hear about your stuff, only your dogs. So join us every Tuesday on Max Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Justin McElroy and Dr. Sidney McElroy, co-host the podcast Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. They just published a book based on the podcast. It's out now. It's called The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine. Sydney, it must be interesting for you to be constantly engaged with the failures of your mm-hmm. profession. That's, oh, that's that's definitely true. I mean, it's a it's a good way to stay humble, um, which I think is absolutely critical in the medical profession. Um, the the human body and 
medical science and and how much we don't know it's it should be incredibly humbling and i think if you come at taking care of people from that perspective then you will do your best job and know your limitations um i think it's really important as a physician to be able to say i don't know and and just honestly tell a patient that and that's very hard that's an incredibly difficult thing when you're in the room and somebody's looking to you for answers and you don't have an answer because either we don't know yet or that's something I'm going to have to read about that because that's not something I come across every day and so I need to do more research oh man it's hard to say I don't know and I think knowing that a lot of people before me have either had to say I don't know or didn't and uh, you know they paid the paid the price for that I, I think it's good. I think I think it's hard also because I think it, to hear you talk about it, Sid, it is hard to say. I don't know. But also the Internet does not also know. So please don't go ask the Internet because the Internet does not know better. And I think that's the assumption is the doc. There's there's this uh, presupposition people make on the Internet all the time about medicine or doctors that doctors are trying to keep the good stuff <laughs> from people so like uh, an admission of ignorance from a doctor can can like the internet can rush in to fill that vacuum and i think that could be really dangerous it is and that's that's actually one of the things that i have said and i've heard my colleagues say a lot is that i wish i had the kind of self-assuredness or, or confidence that some of the people who are out there peddling fake cures and fake medicine have because if you if you watch like people on the internet doing like nutritional response testing, um, they are so certain, and that is a certainty that a lot of the time I just can't have because I I, I think this is right. I have the evidence. This should be this should work for you, but everybody's different, and everything is every day is different, and so let's try it and then come back and let's see how it goes. I, somebody with that kind of certainty always makes me a little wary. <laughs> Who's your favorite snake oil salesperson of all time? I mean, for me, it's got to be Pliny the Elder. I know you're going to say otherwise, oh, yeah. Justin, but I, he was so earnest and so creative in his <laughs> wrong cures. Uh, there's, It's never as easy as take this herb. Um, it's always like take this herb and then get some pigeon eggs and you know insert it in there carefully and then put it in a bucket of urine and dump some wine in and leave it out in the sun for three days and then take it and bury it in the ground and after a week you can have your cousin who has red hair spit in it and then eat it and it, you'll be you know you won't be dizzy anymore or something like that and it, it's just amazing this stuff it's so creative uh mine is curtis house springer a uh, a cat that uh, bought a bunch of land in the Mojave Desert uh, and renamed it Zizix. Uh, Z- <laughs> so it would be, it's Z-Z-Y-Z-X, named such so that it would be the last word in health was the gimmick <laughs> there. And he had a radio, he had uh, health spas that were really just um, hot pools <laughs> in the desert. And he started, uh, he and had wait, a radio station. Like, to be clear, when you say hot pools, we're not talking about natural hot springs, even. No. We're no. just talking about, no. he no. filed a mining claim <laughs> yes. yeah, to get a, some land and then put in a water boiler. 
Yeah, and it's a uh, uh, he had a sixty room hotel, a church, and there was a, a a spa that was shaped like a cross, and he had his own um, radio station that just played like religious music and ads for his medicines constantly. So he um, he was known as the King of Quacks, right? King of Quacks, Curtis Housebringer is a good one. Sydney, as a woman, as you study the history of medicine. Are you struck by structural inequities between men and women and people of other genders? Definitely. The One of the earliest episodes that we did uh, was on hysteria, which is, of course, not an actual disease. It's not an actual disorder. It was kind of a catch-all term for a woman not acting the way we would like her to. Um, And there may have actually been medical problems that underlied some of these symptoms and some of these behaviors. In other cases, it could have just been a woman who didn't want to conform to the societal standards of the time period. Um, And there were obviously all kinds of horrible treatments and and, um, women were institutionalized for having hysteria. And that concept is, of course, outdated today. Nobody's diagnosed with that now. But you see echoes of that even in medicine today. It's no surprise that if you are not male, your pain will not be perceived as great by your by your medical professional. Will uh under undervalue your your thoughts about what might be going on and um, not take you as seriously and under treat you. And we've seen that with um, things like I think endometriosis has been in the in the media spotlight a lot lately, where a lot of the times, if it has to do with the pelvis uh, and you're not a male and you come in with a complaint, you're kind of just turned away and said, like, well, I don't know, take some ibuprofen, you'll be fine. And and the same thing, I think, uh, childbirth, you could make a lot of arguments for the way that we medicalized childbirth and kind of took it away from the people giving birth and said, you can't handle this. We'll do it all for you. Just lay there and let us take care of it. There are echoes of that now. It's not as bad, certainly. Uh, and I think with more female doctors, that has that has helped. But uh, we still have a way to go. When my wife was pregnant, um, you know, you go through the lists of things that you medical treatments that you can and can't have when one is pregnant. And many of them are prohibited basically because they haven't been studied in the population of pregnant women. Mm-hmm. I, I recently learned, oh, like studies have historically gone to great lengths to exclude pregnant women, including sometimes just excluding women because they could become pregnant, just because it's complicated, <laughs> just because it, yes. would, it would make things complicated and it leaves pregnant women without access to uh, many therapies that could be safe if they had been studied and determined to be safe. That's very true. It's it's also a great example of how the behavior of a pregnant person is so tightly regulated in part because we don't know how harmful different things are or what is harmful in some cases. And so we would just rather tell somebody, look, it's not about you. It's about the baby. So just don't do any of these things and don't take any of these medicines. 
and don't go to any of these places and it's not about you. It's your quality of life has to be sacrificed at this moment because there's another person that we care more about. And that's very much the message instead of, hey, how about we take care of both of you? How about we make sure that we're giving you the best information so you can have a good quality of life as well as the new life that's growing inside you? Uh, we don't we don't really take that into consideration. Yeah. But flip side, if a researcher <laughs> comes up to you and they're like, hey, want to roll the bones in your baby to help us see if NyQuil works? Like you probably not. No, I think I'm OK. Well, I I think that if you're talking about NyQuil, that's a really bad example. Well, NyQuil's think- a patent medicine. Yes, I understand this, but like the. But if you're talking, <laughs> it is hard all- to find. Will like it is hard to find pregnant people who who are willing to risk take the risk that is associated with like that sort of research, right? Unless they have certain medical conditions where maybe they they would really like to see if they have other therapeutic options. What you might be talking about is the legal risk for the doctors involved and the trouble it would take to design a study like that. And it's just harder. It's harder to get IRB approval and you just decide, eh, I don't want to mess with all that. Uh, Sydney, how do you think one of these old timey doctors would feel about the way medicine is practiced today? If we could get Pliny the Elder over like helicopters and tall buildings, if he, if he was chill about that stuff, how mm-hmm. would he react to the modern practice of medicine? I think I think the biggest, well, for plenty, I think he would think we were underutilizing lots of elements of nature in our treatments. Like, where are all the feces that you're not using as medicine? And yeah. why, where, why are, do, where do foxes figure in this plan? <laughs> why aren't you using wolf's hearts for anything? Um, but I think other than that, uh, we now we can touch patients i think that's a big difference if you go all the way back to ancient times they weren't they weren't examining a lot of people they were just kind of looking at you maybe looking at your pee but not really touching you i think that would that would be a little disturbing but i think that um tasting your pee a little mm-hmm, just tasting a little your pee somewhat just to see if it was sweet mm-hmm. i think the biggest difference i think the biggest thing they would say is why I don't think the switch from individualized treatment plans to more like disease-based treatment plans, I think that would be very dissonant to an old-timey ancient physician. I think that would be very hard for them to to understand why we would treat two people who maybe look completely different, completely different ages or sizes or genders or whatever, why we would treat them with the same medicine. I think that would be very, very confusing and disorienting to see that shift. And then I think that the whole, you know, the Hippocratic Oath says that we would not uh, charge students for teaching them. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath. And I think that if you kind of take that and expand it to the way that medicine is a business now, and it's not, it's not individualized, it's not private, it's not an art, it's not a human it's not a humanistic thing. It's it's like a business in this country. I think that would be very disturbing to ancient physicians um, who took what they did to be a this very profound undertaking of you know human behavior to help each other, to cure each other, to treat each other, to to provide care. I think the way that medicine has become this something that you can buy and sell. I think that would be very upsetting that's my guess plus probably like some stuff about the volume of the two different colors of bile 
Well, that too. <laughs> well, I mean, are we assuming we already told him about like TVs and electricity and everything? Because it's going to be a rough week regardless. The, the electronic medical record alone is just, sure. that's the end of it. <laughs> well, uh, Justin McElroy, Dr. Sidney McElroy, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It's nice to get to talk to you guys. Uh, it's been too long. Yeah, likewise. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Please buy our book. Justin and Dr. Sidney McElroy. Their podcast, Sawbones, drops every week. It's one of my favorites. Their book, The Sawbones Book, The Hilarious, Horrifying Road to Modern Medicine, is also absolutely a delight, the perfect book to browse through in your doctor's waiting room. Go grab a copy. We're getting near the end of this week's bullseye, but before we go, a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. Folks ask me sometimes who my broadcasting hero was. Who was that person who inspired me to take up a career in radio? And, I mean, I love Terry Gross and Ira Glass and Ray Suarez as much as the next public radio host does. But if somebody asks me that question, that who inspired you question, and I say Terry and Ira and Ray, I'm not telling the whole truth. The whole truth is that the guy who made me want to be a broadcaster was a play-by-play man, an old schooler with big tinted eyeglasses and a cigar in the broadcast booth. It was Hank Greenwald. Aldonado with a lead from third, Butler off second, Thompson from first in the pitch, and Clark hits it up the middle in a center field base hit! Hank Greenwald called San Francisco Giants games when I was a kid, when I really lived and died with that team. And I'd never have gone into radio if I hadn't heard him. At second, Walton at first. Pedrosian throws to Sandberg, and the pitch is grounded to second base. Thompson has it, throws to first. It's over. 27 years of waiting have come to an end. The Giants have won the pennant. Baseball is the only one of the big American sports that works on the radio. In fact, sometimes I think it's better on the radio. And when I was a kid, I spent hours and hours tuned to KNBR 680, the 50,000-watt flamethrower out of San Francisco, listening to Giants games way past my bedtime. Ansel looks back at second base. He throws to Robbie Thompson, who swings and hits one high in the air to left field. Ball is well hit. It is at the fence. It is gone! Baseball works on radio because it's slow and because there's only one thing happening at a time. I mean, listen to a basketball announcer on the radio, and it's all that they can do to follow the ball. You're lucky if you're listening to football and you know what formation the offense came out in. But in baseball, there's time for the action, and then there's extra time for everything else. A great baseball announcer has a chat with the listener. They're a friend or a, a companion, I guess, since there are so many baseball games. They talk baseball. You listen for the little bits of who they are that slip in around the edges. I mean, listening to a ball game is fun when the action is really whizzing, but it's just as good in an 8 to nothing game when nothing much matters or in a rain delay when literally nothing is happening, or when it's the bottom of the 15th inning and the game just entered its sixth hour. Oh, boy. And that's what the Dodgers Well, I'm uh, busily erasing notes I made in the margin of my uh, 
paper today so that I can uh, write Hansel in here right now. Yeah, let's see. That was that was the position that uh, Dave Hansen started. <laughs> Where are we putting these guys? He batting ninth or no? I had Murphy eighth. I don't know. Hank Greenwald left the Giants in the mid '90s. That's a long time ago now, but even his memory felt like a friend to me. Or maybe not a friend. Maybe maybe a favorite uncle, the kind who always brings you something when he comes over. He was smart and funny, relaxed, had a wonderful voice. And the two of us, him a middle-aged New Yorker with an unlit cigar, and me a 10-year-old with a pocket radio, we'd bond over this slow, easy game that we both love so much. I honestly don't know if Hank Greenwald was a good man or a good father or a good Scrabble player or good company at dinner. But I do know that I am grateful for the hours that I spent with him, the hours that I spent counting on him. Hank Greenwald died last week at 82, and I want to thank him. He changed my life forever just by being there. Bonds away from first. One ball, one strike. Hansel throws. Bonds is running the pitch. Hit in the left center field. It's going to fall for a base hit, and it gets beyond Reggie Williams. Here comes Bonds around third. He's coming to the plate. He scores, and the Giants win. That's my out shot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, uh, where this week two of our producers, Chewy and Kevin, heard a woman singing quite beautifully while power walking around the perimeter of the lake. Uh, She was wearing sensible workout clothes, perfect for power walking, and carrying with her a handheld mirror. Perfect for, I guess, admiring how good you look in your sensible workout clothes. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Sometimes I worry that all of those people work harder on our MacArthur Park updates than they do on this show. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Thanks also to the Go team for recording our theme song. It's called Huddle Formation. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Banana, the fruit that changed the world.